Nice to see you guys. I hope you're well. Today we start a Christmas series, and to lead into this, we're gonna be doing this the next three weeks. I, I wanted to talk about one of the reasons why Christmas is so significant. And to do that, we're gonna cover like a lot of scripture. I'm gonna start back in Genesis, like sometimes I like to do. So hang with me, and if you're like, I thought this was a Christmas series. It is, but like, you'll, you'll see. So just hang with me on there. But to get into it, I remember when I was younger, uh, I went to a friend's house and they had just decorated for Christmas. You know, all the boxes come out, everything happens, the house transforms. And, and I sit down, we're gonna watch some television and on the coffee table in front of me is the biggest snow globe I'd ever seen, like a two-hander, like a really big one, right? So I go and I pick this thing up. I need to tell you this really quick. I keep, so every time I go to tell this story, people pause and they're like, I thought you were gonna break the snow globe or something exciting was gonna happen. I'm just gonna give you the punch. It's not, nothing happens. I don't break the snow globe. Okay, cool. So I, I pick the thing up, I hold it in both my hands and I start to look at this. It's this big two-handed thing. And he looks at me and he says, make sure that you don't break that. We got that on our family ski trip last year. And sure enough, as I look at it, it's a snow globe of Telluride, Colorado. And it's like the slopes and the little ski village and the shops and all of the things like this, like intricately carved replica of Telluride. And I thought that was amazing that somebody had taken all of the work to, to replicate this, to, you know, to make this thing there. And so I, I grab it and I shake it. And I think that might be the first time I realized that I really like snow globes. I don't collect them. I don't want to collect them, but I, I think they're very cool. And the reason why is I, I think they're mesmerizing maybe a little bit. I love that when you shake the thing, like I did in that particular moment, all of a sudden the chaos and the swirl of all of that is around. And for some reason, I can just stare at it for like a really long time. Like it, it's very soothing and relaxing as you watch the chaos of all that was happening settle back down into the base of a snow globe. And so I pick this thing up and I look at it and I shake it and then I just stare. And I find myself at times, I want you right now to just imagine that you're holding a snow globe or think of the last time that you did. It's probably been a minute. You just decorate it. And you look at these things, right? And it's like, you're, it's this weird experience. I don't know if you're like me, but I look at it and I'm like, I'm like a person on the outside of a world looking into another world. And I find myself imagining, I go to shake the thing up and it's chaotic. And I'm like, I wonder if maybe there's like little people inside the glass, like the Who Village from Dr. Seuss, right? Like on that. And maybe I just made that whole thing turn into absolute chaos. <laughs> and now they're all looking as the blizzard settles into like a light snowfall and goes back to the way that they had been before. And I shake it and I put it back down and there it is. And I, I love those moments. Here's what I wanted to share that with you. There's no point to that story in terms of like some fun punchline. There's no more meaning or anything in there, but I wanted you to imagine it, right? I want you to recall what it's like to hold a snow globe, to think about that, to be the person who's the observer on the other side of the glass. The reason why, I think a snow globe might just be one of the best illustrations or the best pictures of how so many of us view God. I really do. I've thought a lot about this. I don't know that we always want to. I don't know that we intended to think this way, but for whatever reason we do so often. It's like, we know God loves us. We know God created this, that he loves his creation, that he's part of that. But oftentimes what it feels like is like he's out there, not here. Like he's the God who's somehow just beyond the glass, who every now and then shakes things up as we watch the swirl of everything kind of happen around us. And then it just kind of settles back down. And there's a part of it that it can feel like God is distant. And, and you hear this in our language, especially those of us who go to churches. How often have you been in a church and you hear somebody pray and they say, God, we invite you into this place. Think about our language that we use. Now, I love the idea that we're inviting God into a space that's saying like, God, we want you here. We love you. Like we want you to be here, but he's already here. Like he doesn't necessarily need the invitation. If you start to listen to so much of our language, we're always talking about God like he's out there and we need him to parachute in here. 
We're always talking about God like he's somewhere out there, somewhere separate, somewhere far off. We even, uh, oftentimes when we sing or we do something, we'll reach for the heavens. And I get the symbolism of it. That's not a bad thing. And that's a really good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But you know why we do that? We do that because ancient cultures didn't have telescopes and couldn't see past the blue sky. And they thought that just beyond that blue sky must be the heavens, which is where the God dwelt. And so there's just a part of us that over time have built the habit of like, he's up there, but we've seen spaceships. Like, is he? Where is God? If I were to pause and I were to ask you right now, like, and, and I want you to answer this honestly. Don't tell anybody, just for yourselves right now. If I were to look at you and I were to say right now here, like, where is God? What would your answer be? Is he the God out there? Is he the God beyond the glass? I think for a lot of us, we grew up in churches or maybe you've learned in Sunday school the right answer at some point in time. I'd say, where's God? And you'd say, he's everywhere because he's omnipresent. And that's right. Like that's the correct answer. It's theologically sound, so to speak. But is that how you experience your life? Like if I ask you, where is God for you in life as you experience this world, this place, this existence, your life unfolding, where is he? How do you actually experience it? How do you actually engage it? How do you actually think about God? You see, so often I think we think about God like the person who made a snow globe, created all of this and loves it and is every now and then is in the midst of, but midst of it. But most often it's like he's the God beyond the glass watching things unfold as the swirl settles back down. And we feel that and we see that at times. And so... The heart of the Christmas story, this is why this is a significant question to ask, that the heart of the Christmas story is an answer to this question. In fact, two questions. The question of where is God and where does God most want to be? It's there, right there in the Christmas story. And so I, I want to unpack some of that and, and show that answer in, in a really beautiful way. But to do it, I'm going to walk us all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to the Gospels where Jesus is born, and then I'll even talk a little bit beyond that. And so as we navigate through our morning, here's, here's kind of the structure of this deal. Here's how we're going to talk about this. I want to talk about a garden, a mountain, a tent, a temple, and a manger. That's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through this. A garden, a mountain, a temple, a tent, or a tent, a temple, and a manger. And my hope is this, as we look through this much larger story that God has been telling from the beginning to, to the end, that we'd find some, some peace, some solace, that we find some comfort in the question and that we often ask of like, where is God or that we experience? And my hope would be that Christmas invites some of that into the midst of our lives, that you would come to encounter a God who is not far out there, a God who is not somehow the God behind the glass looking in, but that there'd be a gift that you have to celebrate, not just this year at Christmas, but every day, all year long, because of the significance of Christ with us. And so let's begin with the garden. We have to understand that when we ask this question, where is God, the way, this, this is a very historic question. Do you know that's like one of the oldest questions that you can possibly ask in terms of human existence? Where is God? Ancient cultures believed that gods, right? Most of them were, had a pluralism in terms of gods. They believed that gods were out there, somehow created everything, but then were disconnected from humanity, right? They lived on top of a mountain, were in the heavens, were some other place. And so how did you relate to the gods and what did they want? Well, you needed to keep the gods happy by being devoted to the gods so that they didn't actually do anything and shake the snow globe so that you could be okay. And amidst all the creation stories and all the things that existed in ancient cultures, there was this Hebrew creation story, which is what we believe. This is the one that we read about in the Bible. And this Hebrew creation story, we didn't articulate a many God situation, but rather that there was this one God. 
And then he created the heavens, the earth, and all these things. And he created human beings and he placed them in the midst of a garden where he would dwell with them and where they would dwell with him. And this wasn't like some sterile kind of relationship, so to speak. He, he put things in them for them to enjoy, to celebrate, to, to delight in, and all these things. Like this garden was a good place created for humanity. This is where Adam and Eve lived when we read in the book of Genesis at the heart of this particular creation story is a benevolent God who seeks to bless the people he created and have life with them. And then we see something begin to unfold. What ends up happening along the way here is that, the, is that in Genesis chapter three, we read that a serpent shows up, right? And, and that he tempts them and he tries to lead these two people astray, Adam and Eve. And he, he looks at them and he says, hey, can you eat of the tree of the fruit of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was the one tree God had said, was, this is the one prohibition in the garden. Don't eat that. And he says, what's going to happen if you eat it? And they say, we'll die. And then here's the response here. Genesis chapter three, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So despite what God had told them not to do, both Adam and Eve, they take the fruit, they eat it. And then this becomes really, really significant. You see what ultimately happens here, a great way of thinking about this entire story in this particular moment, what ultimately happens here is in the story of God with people, this is the moment where people say, rather than have life with God, we want to have life as God. We want to be like God. Rather than have life with him where he's God, we're people, we live in the garden, what we really want, what we're going to choose here is to be life like God. And so he gives them what they want. It says that their eyes are suddenly opened and they're human beings, just like me, just like you. They're finite creatures. And they become kind of crushed under the weight of all of this immediately. All of a sudden they look and they realize they're naked and they feel a sense of shame, things that they'd never felt before. And rather than having a God who loves them and the security of a garden and, and that interaction with him, all of a sudden they don't quite know where they stand with stuff. They feel shame. They feel insecure. And for the first time in the human story, it says that God, his presence was felt walking through the garden and they feel this. They know that he's there and humanity does something unique. For the first time, they hide in the bushes. They literally run and they hide from God. Why? Well, I don't know how I feel about all of this. I want to keep a little bit of distance between me and my creator now. That never happened before. That was brand God created a world where he wanted to be with us in our midst, where we could be with him. And yet we as humans chose to put distance between us. And in the end, God honors that choice and he sends them out of the garden. And then this brings us from the garden to a mountain. When you start the book of, Gen or of Exodus, right? Second book in your Bible, all of a sudden you're no longer talking about Adam and Eve in a garden. Things have happened. Now we've got big civilizations like Egypt and all of these people within that civilization. Egypt housed 1 million Hebrew slaves, just as the slave population within the larger nation. And you've got Pharaoh. And so there's a lot that has happened by this point in time. God decides at this point, in the story that he wants to do something unique. He wants to do something different, significant in their lives. So he sends a man named Moses to free these 1 million Hebrew slaves. And he says, I wanna take you out of slavery in Egypt. I wanna take you to the promised land. I have somewhere that I wanna bring you and it's gonna be good. I'm gonna be your God. You'll be my people. We'll unite. Like this is gonna be a great moment. And so he does, he liberates them and they begin wandering across the desert. They escape from Egypt. They're making their way towards the promised land and about halfway-ish, they land in a place that's at the base of a mountain. This mountain was called Mount Sinai. And while at that mountain, God says this, Exodus chapter 19, he's speaking to the people and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's a lot of really important things in this particular passage, but for the sake of what we're talking about today, two really important ones. First is this. God said, I took you out of Egypt. I brought you forward on, I carried you on eagle's wings, which just means I rescued you, right? I brought you safely here. So I took you from somewhere and we're headed someplace. And where does it say he brought them? Where does it say, what what was the purpose for which he brought them? They left this place so that they could go where? To the promised land. That's what I would think. That's my instant response. But no, read the passage. What does it say? I took you out of Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings. And, and brought you to myself. You see that? Right there in the passage, right there in the beginning of the story is the heart of God, straight there for people. Where did he want to take people? Well, sure, he wanted to liberate them from slavery in Egypt. Sure, he wanted to take them to the land promised to them and the place that he wanted good things to happen for them and all of that to occur. But what was, the, what was he doing? What was the heart of God in this? To bring them what? To himself, right there. Where does God most want to be? With us. Close in relationship, just like he did in the garden. It's almost like this becomes like a repeat moment of like, let's, let's walk with one another just as we did in the garden. Let's reset this thing. Let's do this a little bit different. Second important things he tells them is he tells them, and you will be a nation of priests, a holy nation, right? A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. When I think of priests, maybe you're like me because of the era that we live in, I immediately am like, and a bunch of guys in black robes with a collar. You know what I mean? Like that's, but it's not the garb that he's speaking to here. You see a priest in this particular culture is a person who is a mediator between God and other people. It's the person who accesses God directly on behalf of all the rest of the people. When he says, and you will be a kingdom of priests, he means as an entire nation, as an entire group of people, you will be a kingdom that looks God face to face, so to speak. Like doesn't need a mediator, doesn't need someone to stand between them. You will have a direct relationship with me, is what God is telling him. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, and the entire nation will be holy, not just the priesthood within it. God tells the people at this point, he says, go and clean yourselves. Three days from now, I'm going to descend upon this mountain, and you will see my presence, and I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to speak to the entire nation, and you're going to come up the mountain. He says, I want you to wait to hear the sound of a trumpet blast. When you hear the sound of a trumpet blast, you know it's safe, and at that point, come as an entire nation, journey up the mountain and meet me. Let's start this new relationship of witness and closeness. Like, let's do this thing. And here's what happened. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. Of course they were. And they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, "Uh, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Then Moses says to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Meaning guys, I know it's a lot. Let's go up the mountain. Don't fear. And then here's what happens. Verse 21. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's like a repeat of the garden moment all over again. The presence of God is suddenly felt and experienced and it's this opportunity for people to have relationship and what do they do? They hide in the bushes. What do they do? They back away from the mountain. 
I don't know, that looks like a lot out there. Like, where's God? What is he doing? What does he want? Well, he's, he's over there, and I'd like to keep a little distance between him and us, so can we have you go on our behalf, Moses? And he does. Where's God? He's too close. And I'd like to keep a little separation. This is a huge moment in the story of God with people, especially within the Israelite nation, because what happens here in the biblical story, this was the moment where they were invited to make their way to be a kingdom of priests, and instead they become a kingdom with priests. Those are two very different things. An entire kingdom of people who have relationship with God, and yet they're like, we need to keep a little distance, and they back away from the mountain. They hide in the bushes, like the garden, so to speak, once again. And so God gives them priests. And they have mediators and Moses continues to speak and tell them what to say, what to do and all this stuff. That's the mountain. So you go from the garden to the mountain to a tent. Exodus chapter 25, verse eight, God says, they're in the midst of the wandering through the wilderness, still making their way towards the promised land. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. So God instructs the people, I want you to build a large tent. And this tent is going to be called the tabernacle. Now this was a huge tent. It was placed in the midst of the camp. They, they were still like a nomadic group of people. They hadn't made it to the promised land. So their lives are traveling. Their lives are living in tents, moving from place to place. Sometimes they set up shop for a little bit and they, they keep going. And every time they set their camp up, they set this huge tent up in the middle, this tabernacle tent. And then all 12 tribes of Israel would camp around this tent. And that was the camp. That was the city, the town, whatever they, you know, they chose to view this thing as. Now there in the tent was where the fullness of God was to dwell. This is his presence. And why did he choose to do this? Well, it says it again right there in the passage. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Where did God want to be? Close. With. In the midst of. Except this time, rather than storming upon a mountain and freaking the people out where they back up, no, the presence of God's going to be in the middle of the place and it's going to be in a tent. Do you know who was allowed to go in a tent? Just the priests. So for everyone else, for people like me, like you, we'd look and we'd be like, God is with us. The tent is in the middle of our camp and God's in there. But could you get in there? No. Did you have access to it? No. Furthermore, within the tent was a tiny little area called the Holy of Holies. This little other like mini tent within the tent. And they put a veil over that. And that was where the fullness of God was to dwell because the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And only one person was allowed to go in there. And that was the high priest, the chief priest. He was the only person allowed to go in there. And it was like once a year. And so you have this thing where you have the people. Where is God? Well, he's over there. He's with us. But where is he? He's, he's, he's behind that fabric. And even for the priests, well, where is God? Well, he's here, but the fullness is in there. And where is he? They put up a veil, Exodus 26, 33. And you, God says, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the, within the veil and the veil shall separate you for the holy place from the most holy. This is speculation, but I, I think it's almost like God is saying, don't freak out. I'll hang a curtain so you don't have to see. Because the last time you saw, you backed away from a mountain. And the last time you saw, everything got real weird and you started to keep your distance. Don't worry, I'll be with you, but this time there'll be fabric between me and you. You can know I'm with you. You don't have to see. Curtains can be a really big deal. When my wife Amber was giving birth to our daughter, it was a scheduled C-section. I know, hard right turn. 
I'm not a big fan of blood and guts and I don't like surgery because I get a little queasy and sometimes I end up on the floor. And so I told the medical staff, I was like, hey, I know birth of my daughter, it's a really big deal. Can I be out there? You know, like, I, I don't want to be in here uh, because I, you know, I don't want to see what's happening. And they said, don't worry, we got you covered. We put up this curtain and, and your wife's hand will be through the curtain. She'll be on the other side and you just get to hold her hand. You get to be a comfort and a presence so that you're there with her and you get to experience, you know, this moment. And I said, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. So she starts to deliver and they, they start to do the scheduled C-section and I walk into the room and I hold her hand and I'm standing at a curtain that was not built for someone six foot five. Cause it's like right here that it ends. And I look to my right and they cut my wife's stomach open and they reach into what looks like a giant bowl of minestrone and they pull my daughter out. I know it's too much. Soup has never been the same. And I look and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And then the next thing I know I'm on the ground and nurses are feeding me ice chips and all of those types of things. I appreciate you clapping. It was embarrassing. So that happened. Curtains are a big deal. <laughs> they are. Curtains are a big deal. Here's why. I know what we think of is there's a curtain up. It's so that you can't see what's inside. That's the base level thing that a curtain does. What a curtain really does is it gives you as a human being a sense of security that there is some sense of separation between you and whatever is out there. That is why so many of you, when you change in a retail dressing room and all they have is a little fabric curtain that you pull across and you feel safe and fantastic, it's a little ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it's like a millimeter of fabric that separates you from the rest of the world out there, from public space, and yet you feel fine. Why? A curtain isn't just that it blocks you from sight. A curtain symbolizes there's a sense of separation between you and what's out there. This is what this curtain within the tabernacle does. There's a sense that like, where is God? He's with us. But there's always fabric. There's always something there. He's here. He's in our midst. He's in the center of the camp. But where is he? Well, he's in there. That's how we know that's where he is. There's a garden, a mountain, a tent, and then finally a temple. The Israelites had the tabernacle for about 400 years. I think it's like 430 years or something like that. About 400 years they operated in the system. And then a great king of Israel comes along. His name is Solomon. And Solomon says, rather than have this be a tent, let's make this a permanent structure and let's build a temple. And so he does, and the tabernacle transitions into becoming the temple, and the temple is massive, and it has different courts, and you had different levels of access depending on the kind of person you were. The furthest out was for all the people who were non-Jewish. They, they were kept the furthest from the center of the temple. And then you could go into the next room, that was the court of the women, and women were allowed in there, and beyond there, only Jewish men. And then beyond there, once again, you get to the place that's the interior, where the presence of God, the fullness of him is to dwell. And in there, only priests are allowed. And then once again, in the middle of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest is allowed to enter. And there is a big, giant curtain that hangs to the floor. And this system, this tabernacle transitioned to a temple now system, do you know how long that went on for? About a thousand years. Let that soak in for just a second. This is a way of operating with God. This is the location now where sacrifices and relationship and all of these things will be made. This is a thought to be the pinnacle of God's presence is in this place. And people interacted and related to that thing for how long? About a thousand years, give or take a battle and some destruction and a rebuilding of the temple. About a thousand years. How long do you think it took to build some habits in that era? Some ways of thinking about who God is and where God is some ways of relating to the God of the universe. Here's why I share all this with you. One, I wanted you to see the progression. In the garden, God wanted to be close. 
but people chose to put distance between them. At the mountain, God wanted to be close, but people chose to keep distance and have God speak through priests. In the tent, God wanted to be close. There's always a curtain, but there's always a veil. And then we come to the temple and this whole way of interacting cements itself for a very, very long time. See, I wanted you to see that progression, but I also wanted to share this with you because if you think that God is out there, you're pretty normal. In fact, you'd be fit right into human history and right into the grand story of God as people related to him. If you think in the way that you relate with God and the way you experience your life, that there's a God behind the glass somewhere out there that we're hoping occasionally shakes things up or parachutes in, you'd be really normal. If you feel in your life, when it comes to the question, where is God? Like there's always fabric. Like there's always a veil. Like, you know, he's there. Like you can get close, but it's always just out of reach. It always feels just separate enough. You're not weird. You're in good company. You're a human being. In fact, you probably would be able to read through your Old Testament and identify with this so strongly because this is what the people experienced again and again and again. If you feel like God is always behind a curtain, then you understand what it's like to wrestle all of those years. And the truth is after a thousand years, some things would be really easy to just get used to. That's how it is, isn't it? You can miss it. You know, during uh, lockdown, for whatever reason, with pandemic, I started to get more robocalls than I remember. Or maybe I was getting them all the time and I just didn't notice. Maybe you guys have experienced this too. Uh, my phone rang five or six times a day. And it always was like, hey, your warranty is about to expire. Hi, Mr. Kramer, I would like to buy your property. Or congratulations, you've won as long as you sign up for dot, dot, dot. Like all of these things. And I would get those. And, and here's what was so frustrating about them is I'd pick it up and they've gotten really good at robocalls. You know this. How many of you have talked to the robot like a human? Where they're like, hello, Mr. Kramer. And I'm like, oh, hello, how are you doing? And then they're like, fine, thank you. And then, all, and, and then the robot piece continues to kick in and you realize that you were talking to nobody the whole time. I get frustrated. I just hang up the phone. You know, it's like, mm, like a dial up phone, you know, that I don't have. Anyway. And hang the thing up. So I just decided, you know what, I'm getting enough of these rather than be frustrated. I might as well have a little fun with it. And I wonder if there's ever anyone listening on the other end of the line. So I just thought I'm going to say the weirdest thing I can possibly think of the next time somebody calls me. So my phone rings and a woman's voice says, this robot, you know, it says, hey, Mr. Kramer, this is, you know, Mary over da 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 da. And I was wondering if you would consider selling your property. And I was like, that is fantastic news. If you guys are willing to, to deal with the bodies, I'm willing to sell it. I don't know why that's what came to my mind, but it did. And then I'm waiting for the robot to kick back on to just be like, okay, you know, like, wow, thank you, push two, or, you know, something like that. And all of a sudden it gets really quiet on the other end of the line. And the same woman's voice said, I'm sorry, what was that you just said? And I realize I'm not talking to a robot. I'm talking to a person. And now with way less confidence, I said, if you'll take care of the bodies, I'm willing to sell it. You know, oh, as I'm thinking, this is a mistake because I'm basically telling somebody that I killed a bunch of people in my house and they are going to call someone and bad things are going to happen. And she, she replies back and she says, did you say bodies? And then I just hung up, right? Because I'm like, this needs to just go away and be over. This is a bad idea. You can get so used to something being a robot that you miss when it's a real person. In the same way, you can get so used to this idea that God is out there, far away, that you can miss when he's here in our midst. You can get so used to living your life, reacting and interacting 
to a God that you just have accepted and believed and embraced because of long-term patterns and a long story throughout all of human history that he's just far away. So you're asking him to parachute into moments or you're asking him to somehow break the glass and intervene and feeling like he rarely ever does. You can get so used to all of that that you miss when it changes, when it's real, when there's something powerful and present in our everyday lives for us to experience. See, if that's you, if that's what you've gotten used to, maybe church for you is the place where like God beams into the room and then there's this everyday life throughout the week and that's what makes this place valuable. I love that this place is valuable to you, but at the same time, don't stay there. Let this become something that permeates your week. Let this become something that soaks into your life. Let this become something that, that breaks, that shatters the glass. There is no God behind the glass because we live on this side of the Christmas story that brings us to a manger. In the first century, God decided he wanted to do something brand new and unique in human history. And it was so powerful. In the very first century, God appears to a man and a woman and she's young. She's like, what, 13 or something at the time. It's crazy for most of us as we go to think about this. And he says, the hope of the world is going to come through you. And he enters into our existence. And what's so fascinating is this time, he didn't show up as thunder and lightning upon a mountain where everybody said, oh my gosh, I can't handle that. I need to keep my distance. And he didn't show up veiled behind a temple, hidden away in a special place somewhere, but rather right into our midst, God did something extraordinary. And the thing that he did is he took all of his fullness and he wrapped it in ours. And he became a human being and the son of God, Jesus Christ was born as a child, as a baby. Do you realize how vulnerable God made himself in that particular moment? moment? What he didn't say is I need you all to be really vulnerable because you're gonna need to risk the thunder and the lightning and the smoke of the mountain, charge, make your way forward. What did he do? No, he made himself so incredibly vulnerable and appeared in our midst, born into a family of nobodies really, just very normal people. And no one had to climb a mountain and Nobody had to overcome a ton of fear. Do you know who's scared of a baby? Like non-committal humans, but other than that, nobody's scared of a baby. And that's why kings and shepherds alike all make their way to the manger scene, you guys. And he's laid in a trough amidst livestock. Like how vulnerable is this moment? It's almost as if for the first time in a very long time, God was saying, I wanna make sure that there's no barriers. I wanna make sure that there's no pretense. I wanna make sure that there's no mountain, no veil, no nothing. I want you to see the fullness of who I am. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. Fullness of who God is, is seen and found and experienced in Jesus Christ. Right there in the Christmas story. Where does God wanna be? Here, with amongst, in all of us, not separated, not held back, not so holy that he can't interact, so powerful that he clothes himself with us as one of us, and he interacts and lives this way. I think that's so incredibly powerful. God wants to be with you. He chooses to be with you. Where is God? Here, in it all through it all. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, John writes in the Word, and he's speaking about Jesus when he says the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love this passage, not just because it says that God came flesh. Do you know what made everybody run for the hills, hide in the bushes, and put some distance? It was the glory of God. Because if you see that, you're going to freak out. And yet what happens when people look to Jesus? They say, I see only grace upon grace and truth. 
See how powerful this Christmas story is? This, this turns human existence in terms of how we answer and wrestle with the question, where is God upside down in this particular moment? As God says, rather than you have to figure out where I am, let me just make a bold declaration that I'm in your midst. I am with you. Matthew says it this way, one, chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Where is God? He's here. He's with. He's in our midst. This is the power of the Christmas story. It's more than just festivities. It's more than just a time of year where we go through certain traditions and things. It's a reminder that a singular point in human history, God said, I want to do something so new with humanity that we move our way closer to the garden again. That nobody needs to hide in the bushes and I'm going to send a baby. But the baby grows, doesn't he? Jesus grows. Then he becomes a toddler, becomes an adolescent, and becomes a man, and he begins ministering to people. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he has this announcement. And that announcement is, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. And what that means is, life with God is available to you. Because Jesus isn't in behind a veil, because he's not up on a mountain, because he's right there. And he says, the kingdom of God is in our midst. It's here. You can have relationship with him. And he's not inside of a temple to do this. He's like everywhere. He's in places you never thought he would go. And people hear this message and it is powerful. And then Jesus elects to die. It doesn't say he was surprised by his death. It says that he knew that this was the path in front of him. And he even prays at one point in time, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he walks it all the way out. And the reason he does that is because often it's our sin or it's our shame or it's our insecurities. And it's all those things that happened the moment we decided we didn't want to have life with God. We wanted to be like God. All the stuff that we feel in that, it's all of that stuff that keeps us backing away from the mountain, that keeps us hiding in the bushes in the garden, that keeps us needing a veil in a temple. And Jesus says, I'm going to deal with all of that. And he takes it upon himself and he dies for it so that you would know that it's just put to death. And he rises again to conquer it. And do you know what's so extraordinary? That's why I wanted to share this part with you. Do you know what's so extraordinary about the moment that he dies? That becomes the moment where in the middle of the Hebrew temple, the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies is laid bare as if God makes one giant declaration. You don't need a curtain or a veil anymore. I want to be with. That's powerful. This is all true because of Jesus Christ. And this is the thing that we celebrate in the very beginning of Christmas, guys. This is the thing that this holiday reminds us of. And we need that reminder more than in just December because some of us begin to approach our lives where we think God's the guy with the snow globe. And we forget that Jesus has shattered the glass and become one of us right there in the midst of it all. Where is he? He is here. What does he want? To be with you. To have real relationship. You know, if I were the enemy, if I were Satan, what I would want to do, I would want to keep people still living like God is the God behind the glass. If I were Satan, what I would want to do is I'd want to keep people still convinced that this thing is separate and that God is out there and there's this dynamic where he can't impact or make his way in, where there's always a veil, where there's always a curtain, where we can't climb high enough, where God is somewhere out there, but not fully here. I would want to convince everyone of that because when you live that way, you become robbed of the power of the grace of Jesus Christ and you're present in everyday life. When you live that way and you think that way, you're constantly hoping God will parachute into your midst instead of walking with God in the midst of your life. When you live that way, it's like you rob yourself of the real relationship that God has sought to have with human beings all along. And we live on this side of the Christmas story. It would be so sad to live our lives like Christmas just didn't happen. We get to see a lot of beauty and a lot of things. 
because we live here and now. But it would be sad if we missed it. You know, years ago, I went to Israel uh, to study for a couple of weeks. It was an amazing trip. I went to Jerusalem at one point in time. And in the middle of Jerusalem, many of you guys have seen that there is the place where the temple used to stand. And it's built on what's called the Temple Mount, these huge giant blocks all constructed to hold a big structure on top of the Temple Mount. That's where the Hebrew temple used to be. The Jewish temple used to be there. It's no longer there. Now the thing that's on top of it is the Dome of the Rock. So when you've seen a picture of Jerusalem and you've seen that big golden copper dome, you know, that's up top there, that's an Islamic monument, right? That's what that is. It's a sacred space for Islam. The temple isn't there anymore. So the closest that you can get to where the temple was, to where the Holy of Holies used to be, is now the western wall of the Temple Mount. And every day, Jewish people, like Orthodox Jewish people, gather at the Temple Mount, gather at that western wall. It's come to be known as the Wailing Wall, because it's the closest that you can get. And they remember the destruction of the temple and what's lost in this particular moment. And I got to go, and I watched something really fascinating occur, and this occurs every single day. People walk up, and they get as close to the wall as they possibly can and they push their faces against it sometimes. And they hug the wall and they push in as tight as they can. And when, when you find, and then they pray and they start praying and people are praying audibly and loud and some people are flickering because there's a passage that says if you flicker like a flame when you pray, it's effective. Or, and so they do this and there's this other thing that happens when you first walk in, that there's these rolls of paper and you can write your prayer on it. And when you look at the Wailing Wall, and if you Google this, you'll see it, every crack and crevice, every nook and cranny on the gaps of that wall is stuffed with all these little rolled up sheets of paper. And it's because people get as close as they possibly can. And then they take their prayers and they stuff them into the cracks and crevices of the wall as if I could just push this another inch further and be closer to where the temple used to be. This is as close as I can get to the Holy of Holies. And I found myself standing there on that particular day and I got a little bit emotional watching this whole thing because I saw their fervor. And I saw the intensity of just the way they want to engage this and the longing and the worship and everything in me wanted to just say, you don't have to do that. And I, I wouldn't, there's a part of that that'd be so disrespectful. <laughs> like it just, but everything in me was just like, you don't, you don't have to do that. Jesus isn't in a tomb, you guys. Like the, the temple curtain was torn. The presence of God is in and through all of this. You, you don't have to push paper prayers into cracks, hoping they get close enough to God that you can finally push through the glass. For he's here with us and among us. Do you know what the New Testament writers refer to you as? Those of us who are in the church who hold Christ, who know this, they call you the body of Jesus Christ. They calls you a temple, the very place. The temple of God is no longer on a temple mount. It's you. In you, the fullness of the presence of God dwells there. You have Christ in you and are sealed by his spirit. Do you know how powerful that is? First Peter refers to us as a royal priesthood, meaning you don't need immediate, you have direct access because Jesus has done it. You have all of this. And so when we ask the question, when we find ourselves living our lives, where is God defiantly, triumphantly? He's here with you, in you, through you around you, sustaining all of this. How powerful would it be if you opened up your lives and your eyes to see it and to live that way? How much would it change in our families, in our workplaces, in our own faith relationships with God? How dramatic would that possibly be? I mean, it's a powerful thing. The saddest thing I could think of would be that we as Christians in the year 2021 live our lives like we're at the base of the Wailing Wall. 
You don't need to push papers into a wall to reach God. He's reached you. He's here. You just need to accept that. Open your eyes and live that. Partner with him. See that. Pray that. Be in that space. See, that's where Christmas can be so powerful. I want to challenge each of us. Rather than just go for another year where it's like, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't know how to do this differently. And so we'll just remind ourselves of God behind the glass. Start small with Christmas. In each of the festivities, in each of the moments, let those things be something that recalibrates your life to the fact that God is here and present and with you, that we live on this side of the Christmas story. When you sing Christmas songs this year, you can choose to sing to bring the presence of God in, or you can sing because he's already there, because he's here in all of its fullness. You can respond and sing and celebrate. You can open up gifts like we do and give gifts, but I would challenge this. In that moment, let it just even be the smallest of reminders that at one point God gave the greatest gift of all, and it's the son Christ. And not just for the sacrifice of your sins, it's huge, but that you might have life with him. See, the gift that you really get to celebrate is that Christ was born among us on Christmas and there's no distance, there's no curtain, there's no temple, there's no mountain, there's just Jesus here loving you. Let yourself be loved in that way. Accept that gift and embrace that for yourself. And you know, here's the truth. There's going to be someone around you. Maybe some of you get this and you go, I think I'm starting to experience this. I don't feel like God's behind the glass. I feel like he's here and in our midst and I'm trying, I'm learning what it means to live life this way and to engage this way. I think that's a beautiful thing. I bet you there's somebody in your life that's still reaching, looking and yearning for God out there because they just don't think he's here. You're the temple In you, the fullness of Jesus dwells. In you, the power of the Holy Spirit has sealed you and leading you and guiding you. Take the love of God and the grace of God that is in you and be a living demonstration and declaration that God is not dead, but alive. That we are not confined to a temple or a curtain, but that Jesus is real and powerful in and through all of us and be the reminder to them that they can have a very Merry Christmas too. It's a powerful gift, friends. Someone will need it. Maybe it's you. Either way, I hope Christmas finds its way to you because God already has. Let's pray. God, thank you. (laughs) Thank you that you're here, that you're with us. Thank you that you're in this and through this. And thank you that you're not just beyond the glass, but that you shattered it. And so Lord, for those of us that feel like you're far off and struggle with that or just have gotten used to living our lives like that's true, I pray that you just help us to recalibrate that. Help us to use Christmas in the smallest of ways to bring the joy of that celebration into our real lives now. Open our eyes to what it might be in our workplaces, our families, our relationships, our lives, even our own faith relationship and how we relate with you. Give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see others that we might love them. Lord, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We pray that we would have an amazing Christmas season as we move forward. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.